My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Aaron Cricket. Sexual assault and gendered violence are tragically common. Victories won by feminist organizers since at least the 1970s have done a great deal to undo the silence that once completely surrounded things like sexual assault, rape culture, and gendered power in the mainstream. However, the biggest opening in popular consciousness in Canada in recent years for having important discussions about these issues came as a result of the high-profile media storm after at least eight women alleged that musician and radio personality Jeanne Gomeshi had subjected them to violence, harassment, or sexual assault. None of the resulting conversation has been easy, however. The staunchest deniers of the existence of gender oppression and rape culture very often proved the ongoing salience of these terms with their every sexist tweet, misogynist comment, and hostile in-person remark. Frequently, elements of rape culture combined with language misappropriated from the legal system around things like due process and presumption of innocence to produce narratives about the case that were blatantly dismissive of the women's accounts of their own experiences in ways that would happen in few, if any, other situations. For so many survivors of sexual assault from across Canada, this was like a public replaying of whatever hostility and skepticism they had faced when they chose to share their experiences of sexual assault. And for others, it was a reminder of why it's quite understandable that they have so far chosen to disclose their experience of sexual assault minimally, or not at all. All of this intensified during Gomeshi's first trial, which happened in March. Both existing legal processes and most media reports and public commentators reflected many harmful myths about sexual assault and about gendered power, including a disregard for what is well known about the range of ways that survivors navigate their experiences and about how trauma impacts people. And for all that the judgment itself was quite clear that a finding of not guilty was not at all the same as a determination that no violence had occurred, it also reproduced rape culture myths in its reasoning to a degree that surprised even many experienced observers. Aaron Cricket is the public education coordinator at SASHA, the sexual assault center Hamilton and Area, based in Hamilton, Ontario. SASHA provides support to adults of any gender who are survivors of sexual assault. Beyond the crucial one-on-one -on -one and collective support work that is central to that mission, the organization also does what it can to foster cultural, institutional, policy, and social change that will end sexual assault. Cricket recognized both the importance of the discussions being catalyzed by the Gameshi case, and also the impact it was having on survivors. And she came up with an idea for a social media campaign for the day of the verdict. The campaign, under the hashtags I Believe Survivors and We Believe Survivors, got traction across Canada. She collaborated with colleagues in Toronto to combine the hashtag campaign with a number of other initiatives on that day to create a publicly visible response that, yes, might provide opportunities to critique the verdict and the system that produced it, but that was primarily focused on supporting and affirming survivors in all parts of the country through that difficult moment and on fostering cultural change.
While Prickett certainly believes that changes are necessary to how the legal system deals with sexual assault cases, one lesson she takes from the fact that more than 90% of instances of sexual assault are never even reported to the police is that truly addressing sexual assault requires something far beyond legal reforms. She believes we need wide-ranging and deep-reaching cultural change, moving us from a rape culture to a consent culture, as well as corresponding shifts in the policies and practices of a wide range of institutions. Cricket talks with me about the work of Sasha, the Gameshi case, the I Believe Survivors and We Believe Survivors social media campaign, and the kinds of broad-based social change that will be necessary to end sexual assault. We spoke by Skype from Hamilton, Ontario. My name is Erin Cricket. I'm the Public Education Coordinator at SASHA. So I have the best job in the whole world. My job description in one sentence is to end sexual violence. And there's lots of different pieces of that, but I'm really passionate about working around looking at systemic oppression and how it exists in Canada. So I'm really excited that I get to do this for my work. And SASHA stands for the Sexual Assault Centre Hamilton and Area. And we provide support to adults who've experienced sexual assault any time in their lives. So adults means it could be anyone of any gender. And we look at sexual violence very widely. So it can be something like workplace sexual harassment. It can be childhood sexual assault. It can be street harassment. So there's not a time limit. If you experience childhood sexual assault as a four-year-old and you want to come to us as a 40-year-old, that's totally an option. We have four programs. When folks think about sexual assault centers, they think about that individual counseling, that one-on-one -on -one counseling that we do. At Sasha, we call it the Counseling and Advocacy Program because the other piece that we do is we actually advocate on the individual level for survivors. So if it's to their landlord to change the locks or if it's through the legal and criminal process, if it's to Ontario Human Rights Tribunal, we also advocate on a more wider systemic level. So we advocate to the provincial government and we're trying to create a cultural shift in Hamilton and across Canada. We're trying to shift the culture of rape culture towards a consent culture. Folks also, when they think of us, they think of the support line. That's 24-hour support. We offer supportive, non-judgmental listening, both to survivors of sexual violence of any gender and to their supporters. So if you're dating someone and they were recently sexually assaulted or they tell you about a sexual assault that's happened in their past, you can phone us. You know, you're freaked out. You don't know what to do, but you also know that you don't want to put that scaredness on them. You can phone our support line to chat. And then our other two programs are my program, Public Education, which is working with media, events, community collaboration, as well as doing workshops and trainings, all with the goal of increasing knowledge around sexual assault and the dynamics, and also with the goal to end sexual violence. And then our last program, which is really special and unique, is our Diverse Communities Outreach Program. And that's for women who are newcomer, immigrant women, and they may not identify as survivors. You don't have to identify as a survivor of sexual violence to access groups and counseling in that program. And we created this program not because newcomer and immigrant women have higher rates of violence. That's absolutely not true. But we created the Diverse Communities Program because the barriers to reaching out are very different for newcomer and immigrant women. The really cool parts of that program are the groups. We offer women helping women groups, which are run language specific. So we don't have a translator. We hire facilitators who speak the language we're running the group in. And then we also have sewing circles. So multicultural women's sewing circles where women come together and learn sewing skills. And there's also an education break where I might come in and talk about feminist organizing, where somebody from AIDS Network might come in and talk about HIV prevention, stuff like that. Give me a sense of the ways in which the Gameshi case impacted your work and the work at Sasha. 
How did you experience the case and what, what were your takeaways from it? It's been a huge, huge game changer for our feminist anti-violence movement. And it has just changed the way that we talk about sexual violence. And I really want to give props to all the people who have been doing the work with no credit for so long. They really set the framework. We were ready at Sasha to have this national conversation that the Gameshi case kind of exploded. We're seeing folks wanting to talk about this. As a public educator, I'm in getting invited places that previously folks would have been fearful, would have seen a sexual assault center as a scary person to invite into their school or community group. So it's been a big change for me. I really struggled in March while the case was happening, the two weeks that it was in the court. I struggled learning the details of the case and seeing reactions, both folks writing articles, but also just folks posting on Twitter and Facebook. And I also struggled with the questions I was being asked by the local and national media when I was doing interviews. So the first part, I was struggling with folks' reactions. The actual trial just reminded us how little folks actually understand about what it is like for survivors of sexual violence. There's no right and wrong way for a survivor to act. There are some common ways that our brain help us deal with these big experiences of trauma. And whenever we tried to bring those up about the neurobiology of trauma and common coping strategies, folks are really resistant and still staying in sort of a blamey area. And one example is like she texted him or she emailed him afterwards. And I got really frustrated because a lot of people, when we talk about domestic violence, they're, they're like, why does she keep going back to him? And it's really, really normal to minimize and manage as a coping strategy, because if we admitted that these big, awful things were happening to us, it would be too much for our brain to take hold of and for us to be able to continue living our day to day. And during the trial, Interval House in Toronto actually released a study that a lot of people in Canada still think that if somebody returns to an abusive relationship, it's their fault if they get hurt. And so we still have this problem in Canada where we're not assigning the blame where it belongs to the person who's choosing to be abusive. We're still choosing to create the whole narrative around, but this person made some choices that I wouldn't make. And that's totally unfair. We can't put ourselves in that situation if we're not in that situation. So one thing that I really, really realized from the trial and the lead up to the trial is Folks still don't understand what is sexual violence, how it happens, survivors' common reactions and coping strategies. And then the other thing I got really frustrated with was every media interview I did, and I did a whole lot those two weeks during the trial, they wanted to talk about the legal system. And the thing that has changed is most of the interviewers, actually all of the interviewers, were coming at it from this place, the legal system is so broken. What do we do? The legal system is so broken. It's not supporting survivors, was what I kept hearing. And less than 10% of survivors ever choose to go talk to the police, ever even think about entering the criminal system. So it really frustrates me. Why are we having this conversation that kind of frames legal system as the only option for survivors to receive justice when so many other survivors receive healing and justice in their own creative ways? When I thought about that a little more by myself, that's kind of where the campaign We Believe Survivors, I Believe Survivors came from, because the day that we learned the verdict in the trial, I had no high hopes that the verdict would be an amazing win for survivors. So I just wanted a day where we took to social media and reminded survivors that we have their backs, that they are supported and that they are loved. 
Tell me a little bit more about the ways in which trauma impacts survivors. Oh man, trauma impacts memory. Trauma impacts memory. Trauma impacts memory. Like I can't say it enough. When I'm doing workshops, I like to ask people, you know, who's been in a car accident? Hands up. And then I ask people to keep their hands up if the car accident was particularly bad. So like they couldn't drive the car home. And then I ask the folks who were in a bad car accident where their car had to be towed home. Okay, I want you to give me a timeline of what happened and when. And honestly, for the most part, they are not able to. Because when we have a traumatic experience happen, the memories are coded differently. And we have new research within the last five years that shows that those traumatic memories are not more fallible, that we shouldn't believe them less than we believe non-traumatic memories. And Dr. Rebecca Campbell uses this metaphor of post-it notes, that if I'm doing a three-hour lecture, I give you all the post-it notes you could ever want to take all the notes you could want about the information I'm giving you. And then I take those post-it notes and I hide them in the messiest office that you've ever seen. And I hide them everywhere. And then I tell you, you've got an interview with me tomorrow, and I'm going to ask you a timeline of what I said and when. Not only a timeline, I'm going to ask you for how hot the room was, who the different people in the room was. I'm going to ask you all these questions that's not just about the content, and you have to find all the post-it notes. And the truth is, the person's not going to be able to find all the post-it notes a day later. It's going to take weeks for them. They're going to be finding post-it notes in the laundry for weeks. Or they're going to go fall asleep and say, oh, I remember, I, I think I saw a post-it note over here. And that's the way we recover traumatic memories, is they come to us slowly. They come to us when we're not expecting them. And that's because our brain stores them differently. And we really, really need to be a lot more gentler and understanding with survivors that they're not doing this on purpose. They're not being recalcitrant or difficult. It's their brain was protecting them in the moment. And that's actually a really amazing coping strategy. Tell me about the conversations that led to the I Believe Survivors campaign and the other things that happened on the day of the verdict. When I had the idea, I talked with our director, Lenore at Sasha, and mostly what we talked about was capacity, because in our movements, we've been really good at telling people just generally how low-resource sexual assault centers are. I'm very, very under capacity. So when Lenore and I talked, it wasn't about is this a good idea? We both agreed we have to do this, but it was how are we going to fit this into all the work that I'm already not getting done? And so I phoned up Julie Lalonde, who works for the Ontario Coalition of Rape Crisis Centers, and I just asked Julie, like, is this going to make me more exhausted or is this going to be that thing that fills me up and it excites me? And she said the second when she thought about things that she needs going into this verdict and this trial, it was hearing more from people around the world about how they love and support survivors. And so I also reached out to Farah Khan and we connected because we were both thinking about organizing the thing to respond the day of. And so she and I helped coordinate the five different things that were all happening on March 24th. In the morning, Toronto Rape Crisis Center organized court support. So as people were arriving to the court that day, they were there holding signs, doing media interviews, and showing support for survivors. And that was amazing just to have that visual and, and to have people chanting, we believe survivors, as folks were proceeding into court, especially the three survivors who testified, to have them know, we have your back, we believe you. There was also decentralized self-care crafternoons, and those were happening all over Canada. And the idea being that when sexual violence is in the media, both survivors and their supporters and people with questions and concerns need space 
to talk through this stuff. And quite often, as feminists, we're quite isolated. And we're the people who constantly have to answer questions about or take care of other folks, but we're not meeting with other peers to chat about stuff. So that was the space. Lots of folks across Canada organized self-care afternoons. There was the We Believe Survivors, I Believe Survivors hashtag campaign. There was the rally and the march that happened in Toronto. And I think the fifth thing that we encourage people to do was to support survivors in their lives. That if you know somebody who has shared their story or you have inklings that they are a survivor, to reach out to them and say, you know, I believe you do need anything. What kind of responses, what kind of uptake did you see to the I Believe Survivors, We Believe Survivors hashtag campaign? I'll talk about harassment first, because when we talk about being a feminist or being a survivor online, folks always want to talk about the harassment. Because it's violence and because it exists, it's a part of being a woman and being online, I think we do need to talk about it. But I sometimes think talking about the harassment we experience online overshadows the work we're doing. So yeah, leading up to the verdict, about a week and a half before the harassment started, just my inbox full of hate, lots of haters. And then I start to really feel impacted and start to get down and start to wonder, is there anybody who agrees with me? And then slowly my inbox also started to fill up with self-portraits and pictures of groups of people just holding signs that say, I believe survivors or we believe survivors. And so the day of getting all these pictures from across the world and seeing folks faces and that they care enough to post we believe survivors was absolutely amazing like i didn't know that folks in yellow knife were organizing an action and to see them out on the streets in the cold to see folks in vancouver shutting down an intersection to show their solidarity and support of survivors was absolutely incredible and amazing we can't measure the impact that it's having on survivors we can measure a little bit at Sasha the negative impact that the trial has had. We know that our calls to the line increased in the week after the Ganeshi case. And we know that survivors are phoning us saying, this really reaffirms. This is why I didn't tell the police. I knew that stuff like this would happen to me. I knew that people wouldn't believe me. I knew that they would attack me. And so we had calls like that where people were really, really triggered and upset. It brought them back to that place of not being understood, not being believed just by seeing the trial in the media. So I'm really, really thankful that we did do it. And Gameshi does have another court case coming up in June, and we are starting to prepare for that. Stepping back from this immediate case and its surrounding circumstances, expand on what you said at the beginning about how, because so few survivors go to the police, we really need to pay attention not just to what legal changes need to be made, but to what needs to happen beyond that. Talk about what needs to happen beyond that, in terms of changes that can support survivors and promote justice. So I absolutely think the legal system needs to change, but that can't be the sole conversation we're going to have. We're not going to end rape culture. We're not going to end toxic masculinity solely in Canada's criminal courts. So we have to think about the issue complexly. We have to understand the issue deeply. In our minds, our goal has to be massive culture shift. The cool thing about massive culture shift, even though it's, I'm asking for a big thing that's going to take decades to occur, is there's lots of different ways to do that. That's changing the way we teach gender roles to our kids. Stop pretending gender is a binary. It's the way that we have workplace equity. Like there's all these different ways to have massive culture shift. It's to encourage folks, especially men, who may not be abusive, but may have a friend 
who doesn't understand what rape is and is engaging in some pre-rape behavior and have him recognize that he's got to step in and see that as his problem as well before you have massive culture shift. You have to have everyday people, a critical mass of people, seeing the issue as, first of all, a problem, and then second of all, a problem that is theirs to fix. So that's where I'm interested in working. I'm, wor I'm interested in working on shifting our culture in Canada from a rape culture to a consent culture. I'd like to shift from, instead of talking to youth about what violent relationships look like, I want to talk to youth about what do they look for in relationships? What do healthy relationships look like? What does it look like to practice healthy consent? One thing we're not doing with youth is actually giving them the skills. Folks think consent is just around penetrative sexual intercourse. And honestly, if you're waiting until you're about to have penetrative sexual intercourse with somebody before practicing good consent, you have waited far too long. You've missed many opportunities. So we talk about consent, you know, when you're asking somebody if they'd like to join you for lunch. We talk about practicing those listening skills. When you're asking somebody if they'd like a hug. When you're asking if you can take their picture and post it to social media. So those are ways that we can practice everyday consent. And that's skills that I'm actively practicing with the 14-year-olds that I work with. For institutions, the first thing is to see it as a problem that happens in their organization. Because the first coping strategy for folks who don't want to acknowledge that sexual assault is a problem is othering. Like that doesn't happen at our school or that doesn't happen at our workplace. That happens other places. So acknowledge the othering narrative and try to shut it down as much as possible and acknowledge that, you know, sexual violence is happening at your workplace. Sexual violence is happening at your school. Sexual violence is happening at your community group or your faith group. And then once you've recognized that, shifting to, okay, how are we going to respond? I'm constantly encouraging institutions and organizations to move away from fear-based responses to compassionate responses. So instead of, oh my goodness, this puts us at a legal risk, and a lot of those policies and responses look a lot like yelling, like, you should do this right now. So moving away from fear-based responses to more complex and compassionate responses, which are asking the survivor, you know, are you safe? Is there anything you need? In a perfect world, what would you see happening? And sometimes the survivor is, I don't want to think about this right now. And really having policies and responses in place that say, okay, we're here for you. Let us know what you need. And sometimes the survivor's needs are very logistical. I need my locks changed, or I need that person to not work the same shifts as me anymore. And so responding to those logistical responses and then acknowledging that they may need support in a couple months or in a year or in a couple years and we're looking for institutions and organizations to expand their knowledge to really, in a holistic way, not in a tokenizing way, learn what the dynamics of sexual violence are like in Canada. What's your take on the strengths and the limitations of responses to sexual violence that really focus on being community-based and autonomous from the state along the lines of groups like Incite Women of Color Against Violence in the U.S.? I think Incite Women of Color Against Violence are heroes, and I love that they name the not-for-profit industrial complex, and I love that they name the state as a form of violence, and that they made that decision early on that they would not take government money because they recognized that if they were to take that money, they would not be able to do that work of dismantling the state. So that is really amazing. 
and I'm biased, I work at an NGO, so I have a different bias. I think we need all sorts of different responses. And as folks who are government funded, we need to be supporting the awesome work of folks who are not state funded. And we need to be acknowledging their work is valid because quite often what the state wants us to do is they pit us against each other, and that's not okay. There are for sure limitations to working outside of the government system, and that, that is capacity. You have to count a lot more on volunteers and for folks to donate their skills and their gifts and their time, and that's just not possible some of the time. I like it when we have more organizations, both grassroots and funded, doing this work. And I like it when folks have a very broad definition of violence that includes things like colonial gendered violence and state violence in our definition of what violence against women looks like. Tell me about what's coming up for Sasha in the next little while, but also tell me the kinds of things that you'd like to be doing if you had two people or three people doing the kinds of work that you do there. The exciting things we have coming up at Sasha is May is Sexual Violence Prevention Month, and with a coalition of 23 other organizations in Hamilton, we're making a video for May that takes on some of those common misconceptions about sexual violence. It's just going to be text-based and it's going to say, I said no, it was sexual assault, and I texted him the next day. It's still sexual assault. I'm excited because we found enough money to play that in our big movie theater in Hamilton. That's an audience that may have never heard of our coalition or of Sasha, and that really excites me whenever I'm able to reach not the usual folks, because quite often in our movement, it's the usual folks having the same conversations. And as much as I love our cheerleaders, I need to talk to folks who haven't heard of us yet. And then what I dream... I have lots of life dreams, like I'd love to start a girls' rock camp in Hamilton. I'd love to start a monthly meetup for young feminist women, because so often I go to high schools and young women say that I'm the first feminist they've ever met, and they're experiencing a lot of isolation and harassment just for identifying as a feminist, and they feel like they don't have anybody to talk to. Oh, there's a million art projects that I want to do with survivors and supporters. There's even more work I want to do around bystander intervention training. If there was two or three public educators at Sasha, I would be able to have one just doing campus work and one doing community work. So like I had to step away from our Sanctuary City Coalition in Hamilton, which is now called Justice Without Borders, because I just didn't have the time to attend meetings. And so if there was two of us, we would just be able to do a lot more intersectional work and we would be able to support the work of other grassroots folks in Hamilton, I would be able to show up to their meetings or to their events and ask, how can Sasha help you? Instead of constantly saying, we need help, we need help, please show up for us. And that's an important piece of movement building is not constantly asking folks how they can help us, but showing up to what they're doing. If we continue doing the work at the pace that we are at Sasha, that we found after the Giangameshi story broke, I'm worried about us becoming more insular and more needing help all the time and not having the time or the energy to do that good piece of showing up when other people are doing amazing stuff as well. You have been listening to my interview with Erin Cricket of Sasha, the Sexual Assault Center of Hamilton and Area. You can learn more about their work by going to sasha.ca. That's S-A-C-H-A dot C-A. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.